Father, it's cool to be able to be here, and it's been a great weekend so far, Father, hearing great messages, having great worship, and just having great fellowship. And Father, all of those things are important to you, and they're important to us. And they, Father, as we uh, experience them, Father, help us to be grateful. Help us to realize that in all those things, you're trying to bless us as you direct us in a life that matters now and forever. As we talk about the uh, ministry, God, uh, about needing women leaders, Father, uh, help us never forget that they are not to substitute for our leadership, that you called us as men to be leaders. And Father, I'm firmly convinced that uh, while we are a church that emphasizes and are blessed and see the essentiality of female leaders, God, I do not believe that without male spiritual leadership, there will ever be a great church or great ministry. So, Father, as we uh, talk, help us to, uh, to learn and to appreciate, and God, help us to have a good time as we do that. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're just going to answer the question, and for some of you, maybe you may not need convincing. And around here, every one of our small groups, whether it is adult, junior high, high school, or campus, has a male leader within that group and has a female leader within that group. The goal of every one of those groups is not simply to have a male leader and a female leader, but to have a male intern, a male apprentice, and a female apprentice. And there is lots of stuff that goes on in those groups and in the ministry that involve both men and women. So you may be accustomed to seeing that, but you may be ignorant as to why we do that. And it really is important to know why you do anything on a spiritual level. For those of you that are from outside, it may be that you have a very male-dominated staff, or and when I say staff, I'm not simply, uh, I'm not talking exclusively about a paid staff, but when somebody says, you know, who's my campus minister, there is no possibility that they're going to think of anybody that a male. And when you hear in your church talked about church leadership, there is zero question that everybody that is a part of your church, they have a picture of a group of men in whatever setting leadership is being exercised. And what we want to do is just let you know why there are some reasons that you need to make sure that you accept and you embrace and you acquire female leadership. Now, we want to make sure that you know to begin with that we're not talking about crossing biblical lines and saying, let's compromise what the scripture says. We're saying let's be true to scripture and let's not fabricate laws where there are no laws and let's not break any law where there is one. So as we walk through these three things, there are some things I think that we can just say there are some positions within the church that it is impossible for a female to, uh, to hold and still remain biblical in their, in their theology or in our theology. Uh, there are some very specific qualifications of what it means to be a shepherd, a pastor. Uh, in, in First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, it is the... Requirement that they be male, the husband of one wife. Uh, the, the husband term in that day was very much more clear than ours today. It had to do with, a, with gender, and it was very male-specific. When it came to being an evangelist or an apostle, you see in the first century church, I don't believe we have apostles of Jesus anymore, but again, it was a male position. But we are saying outside of that, there's lots of things that we need to look at, and, and we want to talk about three of those reasons why. And so I'll just jump in to begin with. The very first reason why you need female leaders is because of the biblical examples of significant female leaders. When you read through the scriptures, it is amazing when you really begin to look at the story how significant the women were through scripture, even though sometimes they may seem to be in the shadows. If you start off just to begin, one of the, most, the, the women that's mentioned first is a lady named Sarah. She was Abraham's wife. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, the Bible says this to the women in the New Testament church. It says, and you women are true children of Sarah if you always do what's right and are not afraid. Now, she is saying that you're a follower, a child of it. It means you're somebody that was a position of honor. And there's two things that she says, that you are obedient, you're consistently obedient, and you're a person who is unafraid. Which is incredible when you think about it because with Sarah, you, you, we don't get a lot of insight, really quite frankly, a lot of insight into the obedience of, of Abraham outside of their initial uh, leaving of, of his home. 
But when the Bible looks at Sarah, it puts out two things and says, you're a person who's consistently obedient. You're a person who's unafraid. In Scripture, obedience and a lack of fear are two marks that you see that there are two things that, that bring about those things. And the first thing that when you talk about what is it that motivates a woman, what is it that, that pushes her to be unafraid and obedient? And the first thing you look in scripture is that faith is one of those things. In Mark chapter five, the Bible says, Jesus is speaking, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. He's contrasting two things. Fear will drive out faith or faith will drive out fear. So whenever the Bible talks about Abraham being the, 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 this faithful man, you also see that in Sarah's life. And so much that faith, when we talk about don't be afraid, just believe, she's unafraid because of her faith. But also when we start talking about being faithful to God, the root of that obviously is faith. The second thing in scripture that compels a person to be obedient and unafraid is love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. In 1 John, the Bible says, perfect love casts out fear. Now, it's talking in context specifically about Jesus' love for us, but it was a general reality that if you mess with a mama's child, you're messing with an animal that can be dangerous. <laughs> Not because she's big and strong, but because she is unafraid, because there is something that matters to her more than her life, and that's the child. So if you just look at Abraham, if you look at Sarah, and you look at this picture where thousands of years later, the Bible said, oh, by the way, ladies, if you're really faith-filled, and if you're a person who, if you're unafraid and are really consistent in your obedience to God, you're like, and it doesn't sing out a single man in the Old Testament, but it says, you're like, your daughter is, you're just like your mama. You're like Sarah. I think it's kind of funny he didn't have his third point down here when we were talking about who we were going to talk about as far as the women. He came up with Sarah. I didn't even come up with Sarah. I'm like, why do you want to talk about Sarah. He's like, um, it's because I like that one verse where she uh, had to call Abraham Lord. And I said, I thought so. I knew that's why you wanted to have really, that. Right before that verse, I left it off because Rita didn't like it. But it says, and, and she, she called her husband Lord. And so then it says, and your daughters of Sarah, if you are so, faithful. so You need to call me Lord. said, it's yeah, not going right. to happen. Um, and then the next, <laughs> the next lady that we came up with was Jochebed. Uh, who wants to tell me who Jacobet is? Not all at once. Moses' mother, exactly. Um, and the neat thing is I was just kind of going back and reading and remembering some of the stories I used to tell my children about Moses' mother was that she conceived the plan to save Moses' life. Uh, you know, this is when the, the king had come into play, and he was afraid that the Israelites, remember, were, they were just having too many kids, and that they were going to overtake them, and he was fearful, and so started killing the children. And she is the one, doesn't mention the father, I don't know where he was at, he's not mentioned at all in the picture, but she's the one that came up with a plan to make the basket, and to put it in the river, and then the queen goes down, and Pharaoh's daughter goes down and finds Moses in the river. Uh, and I just, I just think that's really cool because the neat thing is without her, Moses may have never known who he was. And God would, you know, God couldn't have used him because he would have been slaughtered and killed with all the rest of the other babies. But she had a plan to save her child, just like many other mothers today have that same plan. That's what we want to do is save our children. And watch a leader do, but run and take care of that. And mm -hmm. later on, you know, the Bible says whenever Moses saw the Egyptian mistreating the Hebrew, mm -hmm. that he murdered the Egyptian. The question mm -hmm. is, oh, how did he know about his heritage? He grew up in the, the palace with, as Pharaoh's son, or at least the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he had a babysitter. She orchestrated both the, the baby being there, Moses' sister watching out for the child, probably had something to do with the suggestion of who the babysitter would be. And really incredible to think about what Miriam, if you look and see between Jochebed and Miriam, this great man of the Old Testament, one of the greatest men, you look and you see women that are more significant than what you might think initially. A third woman that we talked that we looked at was, was the lady Deborah. 
My favorite. Deborah's we'll uh, yeah. Some I just I can jump in, right? Okay. Deborah is just one of my favorite. When I look at Deborah, Deborah wasn't only a judge, she was a prophet. She was a, a woman that the people, the men even in town would come to the gate and she would she had so much wisdom and so much insight that she would give to these people that they would come to her. Um I just I don't know, I just love her just looking at her. Um and she also, this is my favorite part, uh, God would talk to her, and God came to her and told her to go tell one of the generals, Barak, that we are going to go into battle, and you're going to take 10,000 men, and God's going to hand them over to you in this battle. And then, against a really against, nasty general oh, named Sisera. Yes, really nasty general. Um, and with that, she... She goes to him. She does what she's supposed to do. She goes to him and says, God's going to give you them, and you're going to go fight this battle. And if you look in Judges 4, verses 8 and 9, it says, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't. Deborah replied, certainly I'll go with you, but you won't win any honors for the way you're going about this because the Lord will use a woman to defeat Caesarea. So Deborah started out for Kadesh with Barak. And I just love that part. You know, when you look at that, she goes to him, she does what God has told her to do, and he's like, uh-uh, I'm not going without you. And I look at that and I'm like, here is Deborah, a woman that God is using and she goes into war with 10,000 men, and they defeat the army that God has told them, but just the faith that she had that he didn't have, that the men didn't have, that God used her mightily to do that. And I think sometimes if you think again, and you think if I were to ask you who is a great warrior of the Old Testament, you would never think Deborah. Quite frankly, that idea of warrior and woman is kind of separate for us, isn't it? Like, if I'm going to battle, I want a brother by my side. Well, this guy who's a general, Barak, goes, if I'm going to war, I want a woman by my side. And God used her, and even she's this unassuming leader in the sense she goes, Barak, man, if I go, everybody's going to look at you and go, ah, that sissy couldn't do it. He got a real sissy to do this for him. You'll get no credit or anything, but she was a warrior. And then you see her also, when you think of the Old Testament, you think of somebody being a person who's a prophet. A prophet is a spokesman for God to the people. And again, it is, you don't typically think, if I ask for the number of the, the great prophets or the prophets of the Old Testament, I'm betting that most, other than some of the very, very most informed, would, never, would rarely or ever come up with Deborah first. And then to think that she was a judge, which means she was calling the shot for the men. She was the one that determined. She was not an elder in the sense of what we would see, but she was the one who judged between the people. And there's a passage of scripture that we were reading earlier today that I thought was really, really cool. It's Judges chapter five, after this great battle between Barak and Sisera and Deborah. And Deborah and, and, and uh, Barak go out and God does what he said he was gonna do. He delivers Sisera in their hands. And then after that, Deborah writes a song that the people sing together. And in Judges five, two, one and two, it says this. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Enidom, on that day. And they sang this song, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, praise the Lord. Now, but what I want you to think about when that, in that song, that with, that, with that verse, it says, then the leaders took the lead in Israel. Who were the ones that took the lead? Well, she is giving glory to God, obviously, but she's, there's two groups of people that she seems to be giving in this, this song some praise to, the people for cooperating, but the leaders who led, but she is the ultimate leader that went out and fought. And when you think about leadership, do you go immediately go, oh yeah, that's Deborah, or do you think of some general in the Old Testament or a king? And yet Deborah is the one who calls that out. Well, also in that song in Judges 5 verse 7, it said villagers in Israel would not fight. So they wouldn't even go out and fight. I don't know if they were fearful, lazy, I don't know, but they wouldn't go fight. It says they held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. And I look at that and I'm like, you know, we talked about Sarah. She was the mother of the faithful. And then you look 
at her, and she's the mother in Israel. And I just love that. It, it calls her that, both of the women that. And it's not talking just about some sense of mothers of girls. It's mothers of the warriors that it's talking about. And it says, listen, they wouldn't go out. The people wouldn't fight, whatever reason it was, until I arose. And that I arose, literally it has to do until God rose her up. If you read the book of Judges, it's the story of a leader doing well, a leader dying, the people doing poorly, and God raising up another leader. It's the story of every judge. But it's also true of Deborah. I've got, Ephelagard uh, Smith will be here this fall doing some teaching for us. And Ephelagard looks at this, and he has a, a pretty conservative role, a, a view of the women of, of, the, uh, of Scripture. And he says the reason this happened is because there were no men that were available. And this is an exception, but the bottom line is it's not the exception in the sense of other than she's female. The same God that raised up every other judge raised her up. And it is a leadership position. She is super significant, and it's really cool to recognize that. Judges 5, 7, by the way, in the, in the message paraphrase, it says the villagers in Israel wouldn't fight. The message paraphrase says it like this. Warriors, and that's men, by the way, in the context, warriors became fat and sloppy. No fight left in them. Then you, Deborah, rose up. You got up a mother in Israel. Fat and lazy men who won't fight. And their salvation that was provided by God was out of a faithful, consistent woman. Next lady we got on there? Is Esther. You want to do a little background on Esther? You can do that. Okay. Esther, um, I just, I love the story of Esther. Uh, there was a king, Xerxes, who was kind of known for being a pretty nasty kind of a king. Um, and the reason I say that is he was married to a queen named Vashti. Um, and the story goes that basically they had been partying. He had had a huge party. This party lasted longer than most parties. 180 days is how long this party lasted. Uh, and it was really cool because when you think about that, 180 days, that's crazy. And it was a lot of drinking, a lot of partying going on. And during that time, um, Queen Vashti was asked to be brought to the party to and to dance for the men that were at this party. And they think that sometimes, that, that's what I've heard anyway, that he wanted her to dance with only her crown on, nothing else. Uh, and the queen said, heck no, I'm not doing that. So he had her done away with. Now, he could have killed her, but he banned her. So then there, it, there's the look for the new queen. And so they go out and they start looking among the virgin women and, of course, the beautiful ones uh, for the new queen. And Esther is beautiful. And they pick Esther. And as I was studying and just kind of looking at it, I didn't realize that she was only 14 years old probably in that age range. And just how terrifying that had to be for her to come in to be a queen after she knows what's happened to the other queen. Uh, and she comes on to the story in, in that way. You want to pick it up? And there? she is selected as, the, as the, 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 this woman. And during this time, she has a cousin named Mordecai, Mordecai who is in the governmental system as a slave, but as a servant, finds out that there's somebody within this administration that plans on having a genocide for all the Jewish people. And the only way to stop this is somehow to get to the king because this is being done sort of incognito in a sleight of hand thing. And so he's trying to get somebody to go before the king. And the only person that could go before the king that had been in the presence of the king was this young lady named Esther. And she could have been killed going before him without being called also. Now, and she, and, and if, if you were not invited in, you could be executed. So this lady knows that, that this man that she is serving is, the guy, is a guy that, who banished the other king, didn't kill her, which he had a right to do in that law, banished her away where she would die in isolation simply because she would not do a nude dance for his drunken friends. So that sets you up to understand why Esther might be afraid of this person. She also understood that the law said that if you come in unannounced without being invited, you could be banished. Now, I read this story for years and really didn't understand how intimidating it might be. Rita was sharing that the girl was 14, and, and so just the natural fearfulness of a 14-year-old. How many of you saw the movie 300? Remember the guy in there, Xerxes, that's in there, that is the, is the evil king in 300? There's a possibility that that is a direct descendant, if not the, uh, of the Xerxes, 
of the, of the king that, that, that she is going to go in and have to face. And so she provides an end for the king, which is really the only way to go on. And she had to be pushed by a man. Her cousin said, listen, if you, you've got to go do this, everybody's going to die. And so she is pushed by the man in her life. And to Mordecai's credit, he knew what many campus ministers and campus ministries don't know. That the life of your ministry may be dependent upon you finding, pushing, and trusting a female leader. There's nobody else that's there. And he pushes her into something and he believes in her and he calls her. And she goes from being drafted into this position to where finally she becomes the director in that position. And she informs Mordecai about what she is going to do and then dictates to him about what she expects him to do. Well, in Esther 4.14, he says, if you keep, Mordecai tells Esther this, if you keep quiet at a time like this, help will come from heaven to the Jews and they will be saved, but you will die and your father's family will come to an end. Yet who knows, maybe it was for a time like this that you were made queen. And she's the one that could save the entire nation. Even though she goes before him and knows she could be killed, she's willing to do that. She's being pushed though, by Mordecai, if it hadn't been for Mordecai, Esther, maybe she wouldn't have been there in that position. She would have she never would have been the leader. Bowed down to them. She would have never have been a leader if not only if, she, if Mordecai had not allowed it, but it encouraged it. Mm-hmm. And so, but again, you see this significant woman that's there, and then we, that leads us to our next lady. Well, also, too, that just after being drafted, she then directs Mordecai how to carry out the plan. After she decides that she's going to do that, the first thing her plan was, we're going to fast and we're going to pray for three days before we do this. So she had a plan of what was going to happen after that. Another prominent lady, though, takes them is Hannah, the mother of Samuel, one of the most faithful people in Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you have the story of Hannah praying in the temple and the priest comes up and thinks she's drunk and she says, no, I'm just praying because I don't have a child. And I'm telling, and she's praying out to God and saying, I'll give this child to you. And in 1 Samuel 1, 28, Hannah prays this and says, I prayed for this child after God had delivered, had given her the child. I prayed for this child and the Lord answered my prayer. Prayer. He gave me this child and now I give this child to the Lord. He'll serve the Lord all his life. Then Hannah left the boy there in worship. Now just think for a second. She's praying, God, give me a child. I'll give him to him all the days of your life. And parents will go, you can't make sure you can't do that. The kid's got free will and I understand they do. But I also understand the power of a fully directed mom and dad. And then God answers that prayer and then she takes him to the temple when he's six or seven years old. We don't know it's when he was weaned. Six or seven would probably be on the old side of that. Leaves him there and when she leaves, she doesn't go out pouting and bitter, but she goes out and she goes out praising and worship. And you know one of the things that's cool about Samuel that you see? And we don't have time to go into this a lot, but two things that Samuel was really good at was worship and intercessory prayer. That you see Samuel being a person of prayer and a person who is calling out to God for people and a worshiper. Where did he learn that? I don't think he learned it from 6 to 60. I think he learned it from 1 to 6 with a leader that God had placed in the home. And again, everything that we see about Hannah's husband indicates that he is a man of God, that he's spiritual. But if you look at that story, the one who led that prayer and led that charge and led that example, it was a lady. It was Hannah. And in the end, in the last scripture, remember she says that we're going to read about Hannah. I'm skipping one there, I know. But in the beginning, it says, God, if you give me this child, I'll give him to you all the days of your life. You gave me a child, I'm going to give him to him all the days of your life. And then the epitaph that will be written about Samuel, what passage is, is it there? 1 Samuel seven fifteen says, Samuel gave solid leadership to Israel his entire life. So the very thing she prayed happened. All of his life. One of the great leaders was developed by a great leader in her own right, and that is Hannah. So one of the key reasons when you look at these stories, and we can go into more of the women that supported Jesus' ministry, The women that went with Jesus, the ones that were loyal when everybody else fled. Who is the leaders at the cross? The 11 who are running away or the 10 who are running away, the one who's hanging himself? Yeah, John is there. How about the ladies that are still there from beginning to end? They are followers, but the best leaders, the best followers are the ones that really are the leaders. And they are 
called their supporters of the ministry of, it's the word that's later used for deacon. It's just the word servant, but later on it's gonna be used to describe an office for men and quite possibly, and we're not gonna talk about this, uh, I guess, but whenever Paul gives the qualification, some people believe that he gives the qualification for deaconesses, special female servants who would do some things that the male servants wouldn't do. Then you have Eunice and Lois, which is Timothy's mom and grandmother in 2 Timothy uh, 1.5. You can read that, which, you know, Timothy was a church planter. When you look at Timothy, where does his faith come from? It doesn't ever speak of his faith coming from the father. Once again, it came from his mother and his grandmother. And long before Paul was leading him and training him, Lois and Eunice were. And understand, I believe that much training needs to happen in the home. But the idea that somehow a lady who can train a child effectively at home ought to be disqualified from leading the church doesn't make sense because Paul tells the men that the ability to lead the church in the broad spectrum has to do with how you lead your family at home. Now, I'm not advocating for female eldership, but what I'm saying is it's radically foolish and inconsistent to go, yeah, they're just good in the home. They can raise good kids there, but in the church, it's different. No, that call to be an elder gives us an example of the practicality that if you can lead your children to godliness, you already have the skill to lead others to godliness. And so we're just going down through these women again, over and over again. You've got Aquila and Priscilla. You've got Stephen's daughters, the evangelist. Remember, uh, he, he's the guy that... Acts, Acts 21. We see him first in, in the waiting of the tables, and then we see him in teaching the unit, and then Acts 22. Is it 22? 21. 21. We see him being an evangelist, and all it says about him, we went to stay with Philip, who had three daughters who prophesied. Prophecy is a gift that is given for the church's edification to the believers. Whenever I grew up, it was okay for a woman to teach unbelievers because they're not Christians and you're not usurping authority. But when Paul talks to the Corinthian church, he says tongues are a sign for unbelievers and prophecy is a sign for a believer. And he says, that's why at church, I'd rather have you prophesy than speak a thousand words in a tongue. And these ladies, how this all plays out, there are nuances I know that you need to look at and we need to understand. But the bottom line is they have a gift that is given by God in its explanation in the New Testament was designed for the edification of the church. And I had a conservative brother one time tell me, well, you know, I, I, I think that's absolutely true, but they had split assemblies. They had a guy assembly sometimes and a girl assembly. So, well, that's great. You can feel that way to justify a theology that might have some holes, but there's no evidence for that at all in scripture or in history. So you, again, you have these examples over and over and over again. Just repeat with examples of ladies who were significant that in their time are doing things that might shock us. You can't do that, you're a woman. And yet God rose them up. So that's one of the reasons I think you ought to go, you know, if God rose up leaders like that then, maybe I shouldn't be so insecure about it now. Let's keep the boundaries that God has placed, but let's not put a boundary that God has it. The second reason uh, we need female leaders is because of the passages that point to this need. Uh, in Titus 2, 3, and 4, it says, in the same way, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. So again, you have this idea that why does he specify that? Because there's a passage that's pointing that there's a need that is there. He's saying to Timothy, you know, dude, you got to make sure that you don't do all of this stuff. There are some things that you do well, and there are some things that the women will do better than you. And that leads us to our third reason that we're going to talk about. And then if we have time, you guys could ask some questions. But the third reason you need female leaders is because of the practical benefits that it, that it brings. And I'll start with the first one. The very first practical thing is, is that it protects your ministry by protecting your purity. You see, whenever I have friends who get involved in affairs that are ministers, and it happens all the time, to people that I would never suspect, I've had at least eight or ten of my friends, people that I knew and saw at least on a monthly basis, that were men that I respected, men that I even admired, who got horribly involved in affairs in their, in their relationships. In every one of those cases, it happened, it began 
or it at least escalated in one of two situations. Number one, they were studying with somebody and leading them to Christ, and the bed just happened to be in the way, <laughs> or they were counseling a member of their congregation and were consoling them and giving them direction. And I want you to know, you go, how, how, that, that could just never happen to me. I'm telling you, I've watched it long enough to know it could happen to any one of you. And that's even when you're married and you have commitments. When you are single and whenever you are steady, or when you, if you're in a situation to where you're the person that's counseling the girls and you're the ones that are studying with these new girls, there are some beautiful girls that are here at this weekend. Amen? Amen. I went home the other night on Thursday night and I told Rita, I said, did you, there's, there's a little black girl, a really, I said, she is just absolutely gorgeous, cute. I'm old and I can recognize that, okay? She'd be like a granddaughter to me, honestly. For you guys, she ain't no granddaughter, right? She's a potential date. And there's all kinds of things that, that, that can involve it. When you reach out to somebody, and I understand, guys, you have to be friendly, but flirt to convert, you know, is not good. Missionary dating leads to missionary positions, if you know what I mean, okay? And so you need to watch. He really went there. I did. I'm just being honest, okay? Because I've had to watch my friends, some people that I love, destroy their marriages and their lives and their ministries. And so whenever Paul is talking and he's training Timothy again, and he's talking to him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he gives him some instruction. And these are instructions that every church planter, Timothy is basically a church planter. If you want to plant churches, you need to get this down. If you want to help your ministry, it is super important that you get this down. And he says to them, Timothy, never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectably as you would your own father. Now, why does he do that? It's a practical thing that if Timothy loses the respect of the older people, he is going to lose the ability to influence them and his ministry will be cut short. Then he goes on to say after that, talk to younger men as you would to your own brother. Again, there's just that relational thing. Remember that camaraderie you had? You guys could disagree and fight, but you were for each other. Then he says, treat older women as you would your mother. Respect them like that in a good way. But then he ends with this. And treat younger women, and he, it's the only one that has sort of this, this modification or this emphasis. Treat younger women with all purity as you would your younger sister's. Why the emphasis to young man Timothy to make sure that he goes with all purity and then he says, as the other, he says, treat your old men like dad, treat young men as brother, teach, ma, teach the older women as mom and teach, treat your younger women as sisters and then he modifies it with all purity. You know why he's, got, he's doing that? Because he knows there's a purity problem with every red-blooded red American male. And so one of the things here, I never study with a woman by myself. I just don't. I don't have to. Rita will take care of that. And there's this weird thing, you know, that, that women sometimes, whenever you're in a position of authority, I have never came close to having an affair on Rita. Not close. And you go, well, that's really good of you. You're really noble. No, I'm not. The only reason I've never came close is because I have never crossed that boundary and our ministry has helped protect me by not putting me in those positions. Because there have been women in our church, just like with my wife, there have been men in our church that I have felt, an, uh, women that I felt an attraction to, and I know that I have heard that some have been reciprocal. I know it's the same true thing with Rita. It protects the women's ministry. But I've never had to worry about that in an intimate situation because every time I'm with them, on any level of intimacy, Rita is right there with me. So in all those situations when they're crying, most of the consoling is going to go to Rita or I'm going to be there as an older brother or a father figure. And so it's an absolute protection for your ministry that, ma that maintains purity both of sexually but also purity of purpose. And some of you guys, if you were honest, the only girls that are going to go to heaven are pretty ones, right? The ones you want to date because they're going to be the ones you reach out to. Why? Because you're selfish. And so it's to hell with all the ugly girls. And it helps protect that motive where you're not out trying to get someone to 
follow Christ supposedly when really it's about you being able to not be immoral but to find a mate. It allows her to be that purity of Modi to where this is all about loving the person and pointing them to Christ. And it works a lot better. So you have all of these incredible examples that we have throughout scriptures. Then you have the truth that, 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 it, that it protects the ministry. And then, oh, did we script? You skipped. skipped. Okay, number two. The second uh, practical benefit is it protects, it doubles your productivity. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two people are better than one. When two people work together, they get more work done. Um, and I just look at that. I think in every ministry we have, in every small group we have, we have a, like he said, a male and a female leader. Um, and for those that are on staff, we, all the women kind of joke around about this, but we're like, you know, the church is getting two for the price of one because our women do as much as our men do. Uh, they and do we lead all the studies. One and a half the half. <laughs> yeah, the half is them, we're the one. So just kidding. We'll talk later. <laughs> Yes, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. You are a daughter of Abraham. I bow my down stream. to you, my beauty. <laughs> well, that happened for the first time. I hope none of the other stuff with Sarah and Abraham happened later on, if you know what I mean. Okay. Oh, my goodness. You need to get back on point. <laughs> Robert. This is my new baby. <laughs> you need to get on point. <laughs> Do you know where you're at right yeah, now? Yeah, you're talking about two is better than I one. I just did. And, and, okay, I, th- I didn't know you were finished, okay? I was just basking in the glow. What can I say? I know. When that Back down to earth. Right now, we, our small group has been together for about a year and a half with some modification. But one of the cool things, it's one of the, it's, it's one of the older groups in the church. All of the guys in my group are probably 40 plus which is unusual Jason. For, for, for our church, except Jason, which is, you know, he's really 40 inside. Uh, he's as grumpy as any old man you'll ever meet. So. <laughs> Just anyway, Jason, let's move on. Um, <laughs> but with it, the cool thing is, is that we've had, it's when, been one of the few groups, and I think Jason will tell you this, it really is a joy to be a part of that group, isn't it? And Jason and Marcy for the last month have been running that group for us almost entirely. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the few groups that if I look back over the last year and a half, I can say that every member of that group is doing better than they were 18 months ago, without question. Considerably better. And there are difficult people in that group, both on the male side and on the female side. Rita had some incredibly difficult women because of some of the baggage that they had. And I get to serve a role to be supportive and to love them because I love the ladies in our group. I really do. I absolutely, they, they are spunky and they're energetic and, and I, I really appreciate that spirit. But most of the shaping of those ladies, and we have some super talented, some of our ladies are reaching out and sharing their faith and loving people in a way that I'm just blown away by. I get to benefit from it, but quite frankly, she's the one that has done the work with him. And because she's done the work with him now, you have a husband and wife that two years ago were going to divorce that had defriended me, the the woman had, and Rita multiple times, her, because she didn't defriend me but once. (laughs) I'm more likable. But so she she hung on on here longer. Now she's this gift, but her husband now is more receptive because the truth of Scripture is being revealed through her heart, his wife's heart change. Her work in that ministry, all that I long to see happen, not just in the ladies, but all that I long to see happen in the men comes because our ladies are being equipped to be better wives and to be better sisters. And the same thing is true when it comes to being better husbands. Her work is made easier. You have a husband who's angry, we get together for two hours and talk. A wife that's angry because of their focus on Jesus, they say, I'm sorry. One confesses something that, that, that was... He was not the one that really you'd look at and go, he's not the guilty party. This wasn't an affair or anything like that. But he confessed, and they go home, and they are fine after a major fight. That had never happened in all of their marriage. Both husbands and wives had people that could focus on them and help bring transformation. And our workload is, you know, when, when, when you put, when you have two pulling, if you've ever been to a, to a horse pull, you know that if you have one horse pulling, or if you have two horses pulling, two horses that are pulling can pull more than twice as much as one. You would think it was just a doubling up, but it's not. 
They pull more than twice as much. And so there is this benefit. Some of you guys are exhausted. You're running around and you are exhausting yourself only to set yourself up for further exhaustion. You are the single parent with 14 kids that are now having babies. So what's going to happen is those kids are going to go off the rails and you're going to be raising the grandkids. It happens in society. It happens in the church. It doubles your productivity. Third reason. Read it for me there, honey. <laughs> okay. What would you say? <laughs> it adds needed perspective. Do you want me to read all those? Okay. Yes. Okay. That's the, the, again, this time. is the practical benefits. Okay. It protects your ministry by protecting your purity. It doubles your productivity. It adds perspective. Now, let me set a stage before she reads the scripture. There's a story in the Old Testament to where a husband and a wife encountered David. The end of the encounter, David has protected this guy's flock and his herds and has done good things, but he is not very grateful. David asks a favor. Both husband and wife find out about it, but if it had not been for the wisdom and the perspective of the wife, David would have got the favor and the guy would have got executed by David in his anger. So in this situation, go ahead and just read. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house of Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Okay, now, now how does it describe Nabal? Do you guys hear? Rich. Okay. Rich? The wo- yeah, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. When- okay, hold on. Okay. She is beautiful and discerning, and what is he? Harsh and? Badly behaved. And what? Badly, badly behaved. behaved. Man, you don't even have to look outside of this weekend. <laughs> it to sounds know a, a guy lot like, like that, us, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she says it sounds like, like us, yeah. <laughs> okay. But honestly, how many times do you guys, you know, do we, do we sometimes, can we not be harsh and quite frankly in our confrontations, badly behaved? And sometimes all we have done is we got a group of men who get together who don't have wisdom or beauty. And so what you have is multiplied the strengths of the men. That's great. But you know what you have multiplied also is the weaknesses of those men. And there is a fundamental difference between a man and a woman. The man was harsh and badly behaved, grew up in the same culture, grew up in the same region, and yet she was discerning. She was wise and she was beautiful. Okay? Okay. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And then Nabal's response yeah, was... Yeah, David says, hey, dude, can you, to the servant, we can I have food. some food and some they stuff to drink? Starving. We've been kind of protecting you. And then here's Nabal's response. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who came from I do not know where? That's in 1 Samuel 25, 10 through 11. Okay, so Nabal's response is, who's this David character? He says he's something, but there's a lot of rebellious servants. He's probably a slave that's got free. Why should I waste my food and my drink on a loser like David when I could feed my own people? And the word goes back to David, and David goes, you don't have to worry about giving up your stuff because I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? He's going after him, yeah. He's going after point. him. Just like you might tend to do sometimes, And not guys. just kill him, he's going to kill everything he had and all of his family. Yeah, and you might think Servants. that's noble and that's, that's what a man does. Yeah, that's what a dumb, badly behaved man does. Mm-hmm. Now listen to Abigail's response. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskills full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisin, 200 fit cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead and I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. 
David had just been saying, a lot of good it did for me to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he owned was lost or stolen, but he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one, of, one man of this household is still alive tomorrow morning. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before the king. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young man you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live. Now you made me lose my place. Since the Lord has kept you from uh, murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and to your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battle, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. That's 1 Samuel 25, 18 through 28. Now think how wise this woman is. Okay, first of all, in her household, who would identify as the leader? Abigail or Nabal? Mm -hmm. He'd take charge, wouldn't he? Mm -hmm. But if it's not for a woman's wisdom, he would kill his ministry. Right? Because yeah. David says, not only you, dude, may God deal with me ever so severely if by the end of the day I don't kill everybody in that household. And he's just self, he's not even willing to give anything. And here's Abigail and her wisdom. And she's going, don't, you're silly. She doesn't talk to her husband. She just goes and does it because she knew it would be a fight with a fool. And I hope that's not true in our ministries. I'm the man, I run this show, fighting with a fool that's going to kill his own ministry. And she shows up, and what she does, she brings bread. 200 loaves. I love bread. And the way like to a man's heart butter, is food. Huh? The way to a man's heart is food. That's right. She brings, not bread, <laughs> she brings bread, she brings vegetables, she brings meat, she brings dessert cakes, right? And then... She begins to apologize, mm -hmm. saying, my husband's name even means fool, but you are a wise, good man. Every love language that you could have almost that's there, she employs. Mm -hmm. And she ends up saving her life. Now, later on, Nabal dies. And guess who gets to be Nabal's, guess, guess who gets Nabal's hot, wise wife? David does. David, she marries David, she is blessed to enter the kingdom, and the fool dies. Guys, there are, there are perspectives that your, that, your, that your women will bring that you should not dismiss. There are things that a woman will see about you that you need to know, and sometimes it may be a fellow leader, and you better listen because the same thing that frustrates her about you is going to frustrate, frustrate that girl, the 59th girl in a, in a row who's told you, no, I don't want to go out with you. Well, why not? Talk to your leader. She's been bugged with you for a while, but you've not been listening. Rita and I think a lot different on perspective, right? And yet, together, two are better than one. We have not only a practical return, we have much more emotional support and wisdom together. So what I want you to know, guys, is this idea of having key leaders that are there. I am an advocate for it. I'm telling you guys, even if you just hear, if you could go to our ladies' classes or even last night at the worship time. I mean, I love RJ, and RJ did a great job last night, but the message would not have been the same without Ashley's insight, would it? I mean, just when this, when, with, the, with the tenderness not an arrogance, not a usurping, I'm in control kind of leadership, but a tenderness about Mallory and bringing that out in a way that's very female, but God used it to touch the hearts of the males. How many of you guys cried last night whenever she's talking about that? I'm sitting back there watching and watching Mallory, this beautiful girl, a beautiful female leader that made such a difference in this church and continues to make a difference in the church. And she reminds me as I watch her and listen to my daughter, why our leaders, female leaders, are so important. And much of that tenderness and much of that perspective they got from other ladies like Rita. 
and other ladies like Colleen who helped raise my daughter up in the faith. You need spiritual leaders that are female. Three reasons why. Because of the numerous examples of dominant, uh, and I don't mean usurp, but I mean of, of significant women who led throughout scripture. Because of the way that it protects your ministry from the purity of your ministry, purity of motive, purity of sexuality. And then third, just because it's practical. Anything you want to add? All right, what time are we supposed to be through? Seven minutes from now? Okay, we have seven minutes. If anybody wants to ask a question, either Rita or her Lord will. Okay? I just like saying that. Any questions? Practical or whatever? Practical questions? Or there's sometimes some questions that are more maybe technical than practical. Yeah. I don't know what he said. I don't. I can't hear. She goes, you do too. No, I don't. I just can't hear right. The Lord comment. She said that. And actually, Jesus, the, James, the brother of Jesus said that too. How's that for pulling rank? <laughs> no questions? We're going to pray then. Father, thank you for the time together. Thanks for getting to be with Reed up here. And just, uh, Father, you know, we worked on this while we were in Florida a little bit. And then this afternoon, this morning, we kind of fleshed out the final details. And I got excited as I looked at scripture and I got excited as the possibility of getting to share this again with my wife. Father, thank you for her. And God, I really know that our ministry would not be where it is without her. Father, I've been blessed with great kids and great grandkids, and I know I have played a role in their development. I fought hard to do that. But Father, I know I would have lost many battles with them and with Satan's influence on them if it had not been for Rita. And God, I pray that we will be faithful enough you to be obedient to what scripture says, but we'll be secure enough as men to know that we need, Father, we, we have gaps. Father, I remember years ago whenever Adrian and Paulie were dating, or no, what, it was Adrian and Rocky, some good friends of mine from Philadelphia. And uh, Paulie couldn't understand why Rocky liked his sister because she was kind of homely. And Father, he asked her, Rocky, what do you see in Adrian? I, I just don't get it. Why you date her? And Rocky said, well, Paulie's because she fills gaps. I got gaps and she got gaps and, and we fill together. And it is a perfect illustration of what, G, what God said in the creation of man and woman. That there was a helper that corresponded, that fit like a puzzle piece together. And Father, we for so long have acted as men as if we don't need them and the creation story and the God's wisdom said it's not good for man to be alone. Help us to realize that, to be faithful to you and believing in our wives and our women, Father. Move us to use the great blessings that you have given us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.